Okay, how many of you read Aeschylus? All right, get the rest of it done. You did? Good. What do you think? Very Homeric. Very Homeric. Good point. Yes, indeed. Um, the connections to Homer are intentional, and he shows respect to the Homeric gods. What else? Louder. It's Homeric, but it's also um, like much more in line with um, more advanced philosophies. Yes, it's a it's a bridge from Homer to the culture 2.0 that's produced by uh, the rise of natural science. What else? Tim hand, no. Okay. Fun for the whole family? <laughs> the Greeks thought so. It shows me how messed up they were. Um, in what ways is this family dysfunctional? <laughs> Can you think of it? <laughs> All Greek tragedies are about incredibly dysfunctional families. And, of course, the Homeric pantheon is the most dysfunctional of dysfunctional families. Okay. Um, what, what goes on? Clearly, it's what it's derivative from Homer. Yep. I said, it basically, it's just like a story about revenge. And um, just like they keep basing revenge off revenge and justifying it for that. Okay. Yeah. Um, there's the Homeric idea of blood vendetta. So what that means is that you have an obligation to kill the person that killed a relation of yours. Many primitive societies have this. The Vikings were that way, for example. In fact, it reminds me of Beowulf. Yes. About that level of culture. We're still in the Iliad here, just after the Iliad. Okay. What else? Yeah. Would that still have things were done in the Athenian society at the time that he was writing this? Well, things were changing. That's actually the point of it. Um, Aeschylus is trying to get beyond Homer, beyond blood feud. And the only way to do that is by introducing a new idea. Let's call it Politics 2.0, the rule of law. And that turns out to be a really sophisticated idea, not an easy thing to sustain. All right. So what we're seeing here is the cultural transformation that I was promising you as a result of, of Ionian physics. This is a, one of the first installments on that. The Furies are from the old times. This new idea of judgment by law, that's new. And what they need is some kind of myth to justify that. Thus... In other words, Aeschylus is self-consciously creating a new set of myths for a new circumstance that'll justify a new politics. What else? Yeah. The idea of seeing um, your bond to your own family is breaking down as well, thanks to blood. Okay, yeah. Um, family uh, bonds were touch and go for the Greeks. They're supposed to be inviolable, but uh, 
Not so much when you get cursed. Uh, the House of Atreus is under a curse. How'd that get to be? What's involved in that? Now this is dysfunctional. Why are they cursed? What's going on? You should have done the background reading so you would have understood, yeah. That's bad, because they're brothers, and uh, Thyestes seduced Atreus' wife. Atreus was upset, and as a result, Atreus killed Thyestes' two sons, cooked them, and fed them to him. Now, that would ruin your whole day, <laughs> particularly because you are then permanently polluted. You have to be driven out of the city. You're not a human being. It's cannibalism is bad enough. Eating your children is really, really bad. But Thyestes isn't satisfied. So he impregnates his own daughter. I mean, what else can one do? I mean, given that you've just eaten your children. And uh, the result of this unnatural, incestuous connection is Aegisthus. And what a prize he is. As it says in Libation Bearers, he's a man with the spirit of a woman. Men do the killing in Greece, or they're supposed to anyway. Women give life, men take it. What we get with Clytemnestra and Aegisthus is an inversion of that. She's got the spirit of a man who kills her own husband, and he gloats about it. He said, I put her up to that. What else? Yeah. She thinks she has a justification for killing Agamemnon because he, he killed the daughter Iphigenia. But also, she's carrying on uh, an improper sexual relationship with Aegisthus. And part of her motivation is because she's taken to Aegisthus and hates Agamemnon. So it's more than that. All right. What else? Well, you probably have noticed that most, most tragedies end in death. First of these does, Agamemnon, leads to Agamemnon and Cassandra being dead. The second, we get Aegisthus and Clytemnestra. The third, we get a parade to the Areopagus. What the hell is going on? And why is nobody dead? What kind of tragedy is that? Did you have a lot of pity and fear, you know, uh, purged from you when you saw the parade? No. What's going on there? Maybe it's like an advancement, like you said, it's the bridge from uh, Homer to like Culture 2.0. Okay, yeah. Um, what it is is a patriotic celebration of Athens and its institutions, particularly the new democracy. Three years before this was produced, the Areopagus had been stripped of its aristocratic privileges and was restricted to just covering homicide cases. Aeschylus is justifying this new innovation by saying this is really old, it goes all the way back to pre-Homeric times. 
right? So he's creating a myth for the politics as he, that he encounters. And the idea of the rule of law is going to supersede blood vendetta. This is civilization. Yeah, go ahead. What rights did the Areopagus have before it was restricted? We had a wide, uh, act, wide influence in all legal matters, plus they made policy. So this is before... Athens became great. Right. Well, it's in the process of becoming great. This is part of the um, process by which that happened. This is before the Peloponnesian War. Okay. Right. You have to remember that tragedies, like comedies, are produced during a festival that happens every year in the spring. It's a fertility festival. The presiding god is Dionysus, the god of drunkenness, the god of irrationality who is also the god of comedy and tragedy. So for the Greeks, or for the Athenians, these plays are part of a religious ritual. And every year, three tragic writers get chosen, and they produce three, three plays plus a comedy at the end, a satyr play. And so for the Greeks, art was religious, and drama was a festival for Dionysus, who represents the irrational. This won first prize for the first time for Aeschylus. People really liked it. It's really patriotic. It's upbeat. Although the Furies, rather, when they, when they show up uh, uh, towards the end of the, uh, in, in the, uh, the uh, humanities, um, they were so scary, apparently, that children swooned and women miscarried. Take it for what it's worth. Dubious story, but it's a scary one. All right, what else? Yeah. Well, yeah, what's done is done. But, I mean, it's not that they don't, that they like this, it's that they have an obligation to engage in blood vendetta. But Electra can't do it because she's a woman. Has to be the son. Right? But he has an obligation. He doesn't want to kill his mother. You know, he hesitates after killing Augustus. But Apollo says, look, you've got to do it. And what Apollo says, it's wise to do. Right? Remember that Apollo and Athena in this are young. The Furies are old. They represent something new as opposed to something old. All right, yeah. It's also interesting that Apollo and Athena collectively represent wisdom. There we go. Not an accident. Also, Athena is Athens' patron goddess. That's why they call it Athens. All right, the Parthenon is a temple to Athena. These are the wisest people among the Greeks, apparently. Okay, so wisdom overtakes blood vendetta and tradition. What else? There's biting irony here. Aeschylus is a master of that. And he has a very high-flown, uh, how can I put it, a very formal 
and very elevated kind of diction. All right. He writes in a way that elevates everybody involved. Even the bad people have a certain sort of grandeur. Yeah. Um, I find it interesting how Prime Minister referred to Agamemnon when she killed him as a Zeus. What? She referred to Agamemnon as Zeus mm-hmm. when she killed him. And I wasn't, I was kind of wondering about the significance of that. Um, she's playing to Agamemnon's hubris. Agamemnon is unbelievably arrogant. Think of how arrogant he was at the beginning of the Iliad. He's actually no better at the end, and he's been successful. And he thinks that he was successful rather than the men who fought for him, like uh, Achilles. And he's coming home now after 10 years. Before he left, he killed his daughter, who was maybe 13 or 14, in order to get favorable wins. His wife was unhappy with He's coming home now after 10 years of being gone, and he's decided to bring his concubine on the assumption that Clytemnestra won't mind. Somebody's not thinking. The, the, grand, the uh, hubris has gone to his head. So calling him Zeus, absolutely perfect. He thinks he is. When, he gets, when she invites him in and he gets the red carpet treatment, you gotta like that. That's one of the great things in the book. Um, that was not a Greek custom. The Greeks didn't have rugs or uh, carpets of any kind. They just didn't use them. And it was actually uh, a custom that that was borrowed from the barbarians, like the Persians, that a great man would be treated like a god, because only a god would walk on tapestries. So she lays down the red carpet for him. In other words, saying, behold, the conquering god, not the conquering hero. And at first, Agamemnon says, no, I really can't do anything that's suitable to the gods, not men. But she persuades him, and eventually he does it. And of course, it's red, so it doesn't show any any stains from the blood of him and Cassandra that's about to be shed. What else? Yeah? So that part kind of reminds me of, um, like you said, in the Persian Wars with Xerxes, how he gets carried on uh, that thing by all the slaves. Right. Yeah. That's the same idea, exactly right. So Agamemnon... Has, has engaged in conduct which is contrary to ordinary moral propriety. You're not supposed to kill your children, even if you get political and military advantage from it. And Agamemnon is drowning in his own hubris. I mean, he's a, a man ready to fall. And of course, Clytemnestra hates him and so all her ironic praise of him and saying, Cassandra, lovely to see you here. Um, he's going to kill. And she, of course, I mean, this is one of those great Greek touches. She's the prophetess who has been cursed by the fact that no one is going to believe her. Damn. Again, another horrible irony there. So she sees all of what's going to happen. And she looks at that blood red tapestry and she's not happy. But she just resigns herself to fate. And then Clytemnestra is only too happy to kill her husband, saying he deserved it, he killed my daughter, and besides, we're not blood relatives. Mm. What else? Yeah? Um, I thought it was kind of interesting, like, I appreciate how 
She's a deeply unnatural person. You're not supposed to kill your own family. You're specifically not, I mean, if you're a mother, you're not supposed to wish for the death of your own children. Of course, similarly, if you're a child, you're not supposed to murder your mother either. The whole point of this is that what it represents is a problem that the old law of blood vendetta can't solve. There's no good way out here. Either you disobey Apollo and Athena, in which case something awful is going to happen to you, or you incur the wrath of the Furies, in which case something awful is going to happen to you. <laughs> All right. There are some situations in life where there is no good choice. Yeah. I know you've been talking about how the characters get more complex as we move forward in the development of Athens. And I thought it was interesting reading this because Life Minister kind of reminds me of Lady Macbeth. Yes, very nice. And so it was just really interesting seeing how the, the characters have become so much more complex with it, and especially like women. That's a very, I mean, you see how different this is from the Homeric poems. Here we have fleshed out women. Antigone will also be another interesting woman in tragedy. But we've now, we're now in a different cultural realm. All right? We are sedentary people. We are civilized, literally, because we live in cities. We don't, our, our chief hobby is not destroying other cities. In Athens, it's getting rich and squeezing money out of the Delian League, which is certainly an advance in culture. <laughs> no, before you just would have sacked the Delian cities. Now they just say, look, just give us the money and we won't destroy it. All right. What else? Yeah. That's a good way of putting it. Does it surprise you that her sister is Helen of Troy? Sister-in-law or actually her sister? Sister, I believe. Okay. Again, dysfunctional families. <laughs> Very dysfunctional <laughs> All right? So if you can't be the worst woman in Greek tradition, she can be the second worst. All right? But she's still a horror. She's still unnatural. I mean, it's not that Agamemnon is anything good. Agamemnon is a jerk. Agamemnon has succumbed to the flattery he hears all around him and accepts being treated like a god. And that's the beginning of the end for him. All right. Now at the end, Athena says, let's all march to the Areopagus now that Orestes has been freed from the burden of blood vendetta. Um, what they're doing there is turning the page in Greek culture. No longer will we allow private blood feuds. This all has to be covered under the rule of law. And that is a genuine political and uh, moral advance. When this, in, the, in the circumstances of blood feud, whoever is the biggest and strongest and does the most killing, they win. But there's no necessary connection between big, being the biggest and strongest and killing the most people, and being just or right. So you're right, you're right. The idea of justice goes from an old, uh, kind of conventional, uh, familial issue to a public issue, a public policy issue. And what that means is we're creating government to take over many of the obligations that were previously done by family. All right. The uh, blood vendetta tradition is like the old mafia tradition. You killed one of mine, I killed one of yours. We do this for generation after generation until one side is completely dead. Yeah? Um, 
form of governance at this point as the... Uh, it was a democracy, and it was moving further into the direction of democracy with the declining significance of the Areopagus. The Areopagus are no longer going to make policy, they're just going to cover homicide cases. Yeah? What is the Areopagus, the, the court? The Hill of Ares, it's the highest point in Athens. It's where they have the law courts. Okay. Yeah. So wouldn't one blood vendetta is like uh, is similar to Thrasymachus's argument of justice being the advantage of the stronger? Mm -hmm. Yeah, but um, there's a sense of familial obligation and familial right that's alien to it, to uh, Thrasymachus. He, he, for him, um, you know, big fish eat little fish. Doesn't matter who you're related to. Yeah. Is there significance to it? Is there a significance to Athena commenting that the Areopagus is specifically built on this hill dedicated to war? Right. Well, of course. What they're doing is taking war as it exists in between people that don't have any legal relation and transforming it into something else. They're regularizing and legalizing conflict. And that's the point of laws, to resolve disputes without people cutting each other's throats. Right. This is a real advance. Achilles would not have been interested in pleading before the Areopagus. He will kill people. If the Furies came after him, he would probably have fought them. That's right, exactly right. And probably would have won. <laughs> All right, what else? Yeah. There's something about, especially if you have the last play that reminded me of Pericles' speech, because mm. you know, it seems like kind of propaganda, you know, if the Athenians are watching this, then, and Athena and Apollo, you know, the gods of wisdom, through democracy, are solving the problem, then they're only going to love their city more. He is ferociously sucking up to the Athenian audience, telling them how great Athens is. It's a patriotic play. The end reads like a 4th of July speech. We are the great society. Yeah, your point about Pericles' speech is a very good one. Does it surprise you that this wins first prize? Mm -hmm. He knows his audience. He knows who he's playing to. What else? OK, keep in mind the story of Athena. Anybody remember how she comes into the world? Uh, there are a variety of versions of the story, but the basic thing is that she comes, uh, just springs out of Zeus's mind, ready That's to right, battle. That's right, out of his head. So he's got a headache. I think Apollo cleans his head open, and out pops Athena, dressed in armor. She's ready to go. Why is that important? She's the only person in the world that doesn't have a mother. Well, yeah, they're a little light on the details, understandably, um, because he digested Metis, and then uh, Metis's child was in his head, um, full of armor, which would, of course, be uncomfortable. So, uh, um, but I think there was like this um, shape-shifting thing, and like he breathed her in, and like she sat in this ring, rotting armor, There are more than one story, but the, point, the big deal is that she emerges not out of her mother's womb, but out of, out of her father's head. Yeah. Does that relate to like how in court Orestes claims that they're not bloodline? That's exactly right. And then, like, just be, and then he says like, that women are not actually the parents because they just are like the incubator. This is science 2.0. This is genetics way back when. 
There are many primitive peoples that believe this. The idea is that the mother is just a vessel for the father, who is actually the creator of new life. This is immensely flattering to men that don't know anything about science, <laughs> and it works perfectly here. Again, this is a male audience. Yeah. I mean, women seem to even legally get the short end of the stick by the end of the day. Oh, they surely do, yes. But of course, we have Athena do it for us, so it doesn't seem like a conspiracy of men. It's just being pious towards Apollo and Athena, who's the patron saint or the patron goddess of Athena. Yeah. Right, she's, she's heroic. The problem is, is that she's a woman. She's not supposed to be heroic. Those are supposed to be intrinsically masculine virtues. So she's hooked up with woman-spirited Aegisthus, but she herself is a kind of spiritual cross-dresser. Right? In other words, she's a woman acting like a man, like a clever, cagey, dangerous man. She sounds like Odysseus, but a bad version of that, the, the photographic negative of Odysseus. Yeah, there is a certain grandeur about it. You can't help but, but admire and say, you know, you would have been okay at Troy, actually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, Penelope had a lot of the same qualities, just like what Chris was talking about. Yeah. So, I mean, there are a lot of differences between Penelope and Cleopatra, but nobody was like, oh, Penelope can't be like this because she's a woman. Or maybe they were. No, but no. <laughs> Penelope so, is the feminine analog of Odysseus. Right. So, do they not have a um, they are actually kind of relieved that she doesn't kill anybody um, because that's not her job. Women give life, men take it away. So it's not a problem that Clytemnestra has these qualities, it's that she uses them to kill people. Well, uh, it's not a problem that, she, that she's smart, um, that she's full of malevolent rage, that's not good, no. <laughs> and that it lasts and percolates for about 10 years before daddy comes home, and she's ready to go. You know, she's ready to kill him. And Aegisthus claims, I was the smart guy, I put her up to and of course, that's about the worst thing you can do, I mean, as a Greek, not only to engage in family slaughter like we're going to get here, but also not to be man enough to do it yourself. You had the queen do it with all the familial problems that are associated with that. Yeah? I was just thinking that it's interesting that they would even want to present the women as wives in any way, um, just because if they only saw women. That was the biology of it, but remember, Athena is a woman. She's the goddess of wisdom, and she's an ever-virgin. All right. So Athena is a special case. She symbolizes wisdom, and it takes a feminine form here. The, the male analog is Apollo, but it seems like wisdom can be distributed to either sex. Okay, Electra, 
Her name means unmarried. Okay. The idea is, look, she's been displaced. She's no longer queen, or rather princess, which means that she can't make a marriage, and she's shut up in the castle or in the throne, uh, in the uh, palace. So Electra is doing her duty, mourning her father, for we don't know how long, and uh, it seems that she's been praying piously for a vindicator to come back, for, a di for Orestes to return and do what needs to be done. But this revenge, in in the in the way that they understand moral propriety, is only properly done by the male. That's the closest blood relative. That's part of vendetta. All right. Women can be the cause of vendetta, but they can't be the actual uh, actors of vendetta. All right. Again, like the the mafia too. It's strictly a male thing. You killed my brother. I kill you. Your brother kills me, and then you kill my cousin because he happened to be there. And of course, that touches off a whole bunch of more family problems, and eventually all the men end up dead. All right. Remember uh, in The Godfather when they go back to Corleone and he asks, Where are all the men? He said, They're all dead from a vendetta. That's actually a real possibility. There's a good reason why the Athenians want to move on beyond the Homeric blood feud. What else? What do you think of the Furies? It's awfully nice of them, having been around since the beginning of time, to all of a sudden decide to be the kindly ones. Did they strike you as being kindly at the end of this? It's funny, yeah, it's kind of, they, he kind of moves quickly here, because he knows that that's kind of implausible. But, you know, once Athena breaks the tie and says, from now on, all murder trials will be held in the Areopagus, and she says, oh, you, furious. I can see that you are still furious. How about this? Why don't you inhabit Athens, and you become the kindly ones that push us in the direction of a legal order? And the Furies say, well, okay, which is a completely implausible response from the Furies. But he has to get that done. In other words, we have to do away with the Furies and allow whatever is righteous in them to reinforce the power of law. Right? So what Aeschylus is doing is self-consciously transforming Greek mythology to meet the needs of the time. Right? So Aeschylus is the first of the great Greek tragedians, and many think he's the greatest of them, which is a plausible but not necess necessary claim. We'll see what happens when we read the frogs by Aristophanes. What else? So you're talking about how Aeschylus like, gets rid of the blood vendetta right. and replaces it with the court. But how much different is the court here? Because it seems that um, Orestes is still justified in killing his mother because Apollo like, commanded him to it. So it still seems that the blood vendetta well, remember that, that the Greek gods and goddesses are not Yahweh, so they're not always righteous. They're always powerful, though, and crossing them is dangerous. So Orestes sort of wants to kill his mother and, so, and sort of doesn't, which is understandable. He feels the obligation to his father and the obligation of blood vendetta. But on the other hand, there's something basically unnatural and improper about slaying your parents. 
So he's caught in a situation that is unenviable because there's no good choice. Apollo pushes him in the direction he actually chooses, which is no doubt the smart thing to do. Don't cross Apollo. Think about the first book of the, of the Iliad. On the other hand, this means that he's going to run into conflict with the Furies, and for that he has no good solution. Except, let's run away to Athens, which happens to be the place where this is being put on. So, of course, when they finish that final play, that final scene, they're actually literally going up to the Areopagus, and they lead the whole crowd in the audience following them, uh, drinking and boasting and saying how great Athens is. So it's a very uh, patriotic kind of finish. Mm -hmm. so, like, like in the new Korean song, in the new system of yeah. what determines what is just? Um, the opinion of 12 jurors. Okay. Right? And here they had a 6 to 6 tie. Athena breaks it, and Athena is not going to accept any uh, conflict over it. She's decisive. And she says, from now on, we're always going to do this. Which gives a kind of mythical legitimacy to the Areopagus as a new court of murder. Right? Yeah? Uh, from board, you have wisdom comes through suffering. Can you elaborate yeah. on this? Yeah. Um, Dostoevsky once wrote that suffering is the origin of all consciousness. Maybe it's true, maybe it isn't. But uh, people that are inexperienced particularly those that haven't felt the pains and difficulties of the world, often have a very superficial understanding of the human condition. Nobody looks for big picture life advice from a five-year-old because they haven't experienced enough of life. And when all folks like me talk about experience of life, what we mean is pain. Right? When by experiencing life, we mean uh, feeling the consequences of your mistakes, losing things that can't be gotten back. Remember that tragedy, unlike comedy, tragedy is always about irrevocable errors. In other words, once you make this mistake, you can't fix it. In other words, even though Clytemnestra's ghost comes back in the humanities, there's no way of reviving mom and dad once they were killed by uh, Clytemnestra and Orestes. So, comedy is about revocable mistakes. Think of Shakespearean comedy. The boy and girl twins get separated at birth, they come back, but they're both cross-dressing, and then they marry two other people at the end, <laughs> right? In other words, they make a mistake because they don't recognize each other, but just at the end, they realize who they are, so they can't marry each other, they marry these two other people, and a whole bunch of other people get married too, because that's the way Shakespearean comedies end, <laughs> right? So, uh, irrevocable mistakes are a fact of life, and it's actually something worth thinking about. There are actions that you, or people you're close to, or people you know, are going to choose that mess things up in a way that can't be fixed. Murder is a good example, but there are plenty of others. Betray a friend, and then regret it. You've lost that friend regardless. There are wrong actions in life for which I'm sorry is intrinsically insufficient. 
that's actually a really hard lesson. And you may, at this point in your, in your life, you may or may not have learned that lesson, but it's true. There are some things for which an apology just won't do the job. Kill somebody's child. No doubt you will tell them that you're sorry, but that will have a very minimal impact on their feelings about this. Right. Particularly if you don't do it accidentally. If you do it intentionally, I was drunk. Well, no one's going to take that as an excuse. Or I was stupid, or I was angry. Look, there's no excuse for this. No one's going to take an excuse for killing that child. There are lots of, I mean, there are times when you, uh, you know, when people will betray one another. And when that happens, sorry is all we have, but sorry may not be enough. Well, that's a hard fact of life. Um, pain introduces you and forces you to consider your limitations. All right. Until you experience pain, you're likely to think yourself invincible. One of the great lessons in life is that, look, life is short, uncertain, and inevitably brings difficulties. And all of us are vincible. Not one of us is unbeatable. All right. Okay, who's going to present this? Go ahead. Well, you can start with the beginning and end. Whoever does the amenities or the the Arrestia this week by Aeschylus and just a little background on him he is one of like the earliest Greek uh, tragedy writers that has been preserved and the three plays in the Arrestia are the Agamemnon which I'm going to do and then um, Paul is going to do the uh, Libation Bearers and Alexander's got the uh, Eumenides um, as you probably tell from this reading um, Aeschylus is concerned with interrelationships between God and men um, even though during this time the pre-Socratics uh, teachings were going on at around the same time Pre-Socratics are a century earlier. Okay. Years earlier. So, yeah. This is the fallout of the Pre-Socratics. Okay. Well, so you still see that they're carrying over from old tradition, um, even though the Pre-Socratics had new ideas and new thoughts. Um, but I think the Arrestria is important um, because it shows that even though there were new methods arising, uh, some Greeks still stuck to the roots and did not change their ways of thinking about the gods that have been there since the beginning of time. Um, and I'm just going to go over some of the main themes in like regular Greek playwright hubris. Um, that's pretty obvious. We see that through Agamemnon. Agamemnon I'll get to that later. Um, kudos, praise, and honor. You, in this play, in Agamemnon, you see that mainly through the chorus and the leader of the chorus. Um, arete, if virtue, you only really see that with, um, uh, what's her name? Uh, Cassandra. Yeah, you only really see that with Cassandra. And, um, Xenia hospitality, it's kind of more of like a bad hospitality, um, not like we read in, in Odysseus in the Odyssey, where they're always welcoming people into the house. This is like a, a bad hospitality, obviously, with Clytemnestra and plotting to kill him there. Um, so, however, this play does exemplify Greek tragedy way perfectly um, through the four themes we went over last week Ate, Hubris, Moira, and Nemesis. And um, I'm just going to go over the characters because there wasn't that many. 
So I'm going to show how each of those characters exemplified the, um, the four main themes in Greek tragedy. So the first is the chorus, um, and like the leader of the chorus, um, a huge part of Greek tragedy is the chorus, and they are a group of elders who are worried about who are worried um, they're getting too old to defend their city and that the Achaeans have not come back yet and that the city might fall if they die out and the Achaeans aren't back by then. Um, and they want the more youthful Achaean soldiers to return home to protect them. Um, and I think they're more wise than anything else in this play that you get from them. Um, and they represent kudos, like praise and honor, because they're pretty honorable men. They're wise men who have lived there for a while, and they know what's going on. Also, just a, you have to remember that um, the chorus does the narration in a Greek tragedy, and that's one of the most important things they do. In addition to that, they're involved in singing and dancing, so it would have been a very strange spectacle for us. Now, these old men turn out to be the ones who realize, because they're wise, that the old way of doing things is on the way out. So they're laying the foundations for the possibility of a new way of doing things at the end. like this is kind of like a comparison um, between the Spartan ideals. They see honor only in winning, and they still have the mindset of righteousness and military success, which kind of goes along with Achilles. So therefore, when Agamemnon returns home, they see him as like a god, a godlike hero. And um, even at the death, they consider his death sacrilegious, like Clytemnestra just killed a god. So um, you can see the old uh, Homeric traits passing through there, and that continues through uh, their their use of the gods. Um, the gods still play a huge role in Greek tragedy, and um, the gods were accredited for the victory in Troy, and the herald um, in the play who, who brings the news that they won um, even states that Zeus did all the work and that he won the war because he wanted revenge on Troy. And uh, just like in the Iliad and the Odyssey, this tragedy shows primitive belief that whatever happens, good or bad, is the gods doing. Um, and it's more of like a love-hate type relationship with the gods still, or like in better words, um, like a curse or blessed type thing. Yeah, you're right about that. But remember, Agamemnon thinks that he won, or at least he acts like he won, not Zeus. Mm-hmm. And that's going to bring the fates down upon him. Yeah. So I think Clyde Temestra is like the main focus of the play, so I'm going to focus a lot on her. Like we mentioned earlier, she's the sister of Helen and probably the second worst in Greek tragedy. So... Um, with the character of Clytemnestra, without uh, reading this before uh, or knowing the outcome, I feel like Aeschylus kind of makes the reader like almost sympathize with Clytemnestra. And um, I think maybe he did that on purpose to create um, an even more interesting tragedy because people who are reading it without knowing the outcome first, like back in the day, they're like, oh, wow, maybe she was right. Uh, maybe Clytemnestra is not so bad after all because of the way he portrays her. And I'm just going to go through some of the instances where he shows uh, the sympathy for her. Um, in the beginning on like page 110, we begin to see her reasoning uh, for her anger towards Agamemnon when she talks. Um, she says he had the heart to sacrifice his daughter in order to receive good wins at Troy. And um, somehow Agamemnon justifies killing his own daughter in order to be blessed at a war effort. And this is the beginning of where we see people putting their full belief in the gods in order to win favor. Um, and then later on she shows how um, the, the sympathy continues um, uh, she displays well this is where she, she displays a pretty cunning deceit towards the herald um, when she heard Agamemnon's close to return she acts like she is excited about this and she says for all that I sacrificed a woman's way may he return and find her true at Hall uh, just as the day he left her faithful to the last I have not changed the strange of times can never break our seal 
So Ashless is portraying it like she really the whole time wants him to return and she's been missing him all these years when clearly that's a downright, downright lie. Remember that everybody in the audience will know the story. Okay. In other words, this is not, they're not being told something new. These are old stories that are floating around okay. and they get turned into tragedies. But the audience, for example, um, there's an, there's an electro play by Euripides, for example. Um, these plays, these uh, myths, are common cultural uh, markers or landmarks that everyone in the audience would have known. Whatever spin gets put on it, that comes from Eskos or the other tragic writers, and that's what's important. Okay. Um, and then, yeah, I guess there's one more thing with sympathy. She says, when a woman sits at home and a man is gone, uh, the loneliness is terrible. And she also said, "I have no." T- she also said, "I have no tears to spare. I watch till night. My eyes still burn. I saw my- the torch um, I lit for you alone." And then again, she brings up how he killed her child. So the sympathy—it it looks like she's is playing, portraying her sympathetically, but in reality, that's as we see at the end, that's not the case. It's powerful, dramatic irony. Mm-hmm. Everybody knows so I think the most clever thing in this tragedy is when Aeschylus shows the cleverness of Clytemnestra when she first greets Agamemnon. I know we, you talked about it a little bit with the red carpet, but um, she really sparks Agamemnon's hubris when she orders the woman to pave uh, Agamemnon, Agamemnon's way with the tapestries. And she even, she even says, let the uh, red streams flow. And I, think, I thought that symbolized that it was his death, and he's too, he's too arrogant to realize that. And she ends up saying, we will do whatever fate requires, but that just probably goes right over his head. Um, and at first, Agamemnon does not let his hubris overcome him. He says, it's all the gods that get the glory. But I, don't, I think, can we really believe that that's true? Because... Um, yeah, it, it, so he obviously used Helen as an excuse to fight a war for his own glory and to glorify the Kings and Argus, but... Um, she questions, uh, Clytemnestra even questions if he would be this humble of Prime had these successes. And then he proceeds to allow the slave to take off his shoes and walk along the red carpet. So basically now she has him in a trap and she knows that he's, he's not going to fall, or he's going to fall for whatever she does to him. So yeah, it doesn't take him long to, to uh, show that hubris. Um, the next character is Aegisthus. He's his excuse for becoming king is that his father, uh, Thyestes, was supposed to have a throne over Atreus. Um, and now this could be considered fate or Moira, um, that he, Aegisthus, is technically on the throne because he is redeeming what should have been his. So he's saying that it's fate, that it's his throne now, but clearly that's not, he doesn't gain it in the right way. And um, the leader of the chorus says that just because you killed the king doesn't mean that uh, you get the throne. And he didn't even, he didn't even kill the king himself. Um, and it, that could be seen as really cowardly because he had the, he had his wife Clytemnestra or his mistress do it for him. It's a sexual inversion between Aegisthus and Clytemnestra. She's much more masculine. She's able to act and justify her actions, whereas Aegisthus is a scheming little worm, mm-hmm. and he's in the product of an incestuous relationship. So there's something seriously defective about him. Yeah. Um, and then Cassandra, uh, I think she best exemplifies fate and also Arete uh, in virtue. I'll get to that at the end. But um, she was brought to Troy after Ajax took her and then gave her to Agamemnon um, as a prize of war. And she was the story is she was loved by the god Apollo. And he gave her the power of prophecy if she obeyed his orders. And she ended up disobeying 
um, uh, his orders and uh, Apollo avenged us by saying that all the prophecies you tell are not going to be believed by men and she accurately predicted like the events of fall of Troy and the death of Agamemnon but um, none, none of them believed her and this is evidenced through uh, one of her conversations with the chorus where she's trying to convince them what's going on and it's hard for them to understand that because of the curse obviously and um it just made me think, like, how bad of a curse, the irony of, of curses is, like, when you try to tell somebody the truth and they just won't believe you no matter what, um, how that would actually be a terrible curse. And uh, she, she even says, I will tell you someone plots revenge, a lion who lacks a lion's heart. He sprawled at home in the royal lair and set a trap for the Lord on his return. Obviously talking about um, Agisthes, I guess this. Um, and then she then says, like, if you don't believe me, it doesn't matter because it will happen anyway. It's fate. Um, uh, talking about the theme of Moira again. And she's pretty blunt and straight up says, Agamemnon, you will see him dead. And they just don't really, can't really believe it because it's a prophecy. Um, and then she is also very willing in accepting her fate. And she said that she didn't want to be praised at the death. And that is only for the wretched. And she seems very brave here because... Um, that just shows like a lot of virtue that she's willing to die, and it kind of shows that she's even more brave than the man of justice, um, like you said, with the confusion of identity there. Um, and then Agamemnon, he's a fairly predictable character. Obviously, you see his hubris, um, and, and uh, he he appears briefly in the in the play um, and behaves arrogantly, and he goes to uh, his death unaware of his fate, obviously because of his hubris, and. Um, this clearly show, is shown through the end of the play when Clytemnestra kills him, and she actually wraps him. It says, coiled him round and round in his wealth. So that was just another play on his hubris there. And um, so when he died, she wrapped him in all these, like, good, like, nice dresses and um, ornaments and stuff. And uh, she claims that it was perfectly just. And uh, in conclusion, I think um, with this story, why is it tragedy? It's because it's, it's just a just, um, it's just a continuous cycle of, uh, violence of revenge and justification by more revenge and ultimately this is true um, as you'll see in the next play of the Liberation Bears Paul's going to give All right, Paul, All right. Uh,
one of the most important limitations that Justice 1.0 has is the fact that it never, it cannot reach a conclusion. Uh, one murder ends up sparking a series of murders in succession, and it seemingly would continue forever until it's not replaced with a better form of justice. Um, this trend is especially present in the libation bearers, uh, the never-ending nature of Justice 1.0. Um, because of the rejection of this primitive form of uh, justice, uh, the Oresteia, I found that it, it appeared to be a criticism of the old Homeric poems. Uh, the Iliad, for example, is uh, rife with retaliatory justice. Uh, the entire Trojan War, as we know, begins with Menelaus' retaliation for Paris' defense. Um, getting rid of this inferior system that's uh, presented by Homer and instead establishing a more democratic court of law seems to be the goal of uh, the Libation Bearers. Uh, the characters in the Libation Bearers, uh, it questions the morality of uh, justice that's based on revenge. Electra at line, I think, 124, when she's at Agamemnon's grave, can't reconcile the act of praying to the gods her mother's demise. She says, um, how can I ask the gods for that, for the death of uh, Clytemnestra, and keep my conscience clear? Uh, Electra has to be assured by the leader of the choir that saying the prayer was a just thing to do, and so this kind of overpowers any moral argument that Electra could have made when she does finally say the prayer, she finishes it by pretty well uh, summarizing uh, Justice 1.0, saying, uh, kill the killers in return. Uh, she believes that this is now justice because it's what the choir told her. Um, she also uh, says that in the midst of prayers for good, I place this curse for them. So it seems like she's now accepted this to be the, um, the right thing to do, uh, despite not wanting her to kill her mother. Uh, we also see this um, moral objection to follow through with justice when Orestes uh, hesitates in killing uh, Clytemnestra. Uh, he hesitates until Pylades reminds him that Apollo told him to do it. And so the, the point of these two instances is to show how Electra and Orestes have to put aside moral constraints in order to abide by Justice 1.0, and it shows that this is a system that can't, that can't uh, continue. Uh, so um, after finishing reading the Orsteia, I realized that Justice 1.0 is it's too simple to be effective. Uh, neither Electra or Orestes acknowledge Clytemnestra's motives in killing Agamemnon. Uh, using the precepts of Justice 1.0, they come to the conclusion that Clytemnestra must die because she killed Agamemnon, but um, Agamemnon's own offenses aren't ever really mentioned in the Libation Bearers. Electra mentions Iphigenia indirectly at around line 240, how she remembers that she had a sister, but the, she never makes the connection between Iphigenia's death and Clytemnestra's murder of Agamemnon. This never changes her view that Clytemnestra has to die because it would be the just thing to do. So, um, again, the libation bearers serve as a kind of a, a bridge that connects Agamemnon and the Humanities. We see the continuation of murders that is a result of um, not having some better form of justice. And um, it, it shows how this, this antiquated um, 
the retaliation system of retaliation never permanently solves the problem, and it wouldn't be until the humanities where we would actually see a viable and effective solution to uh, legal disputes. So. Yeah, it's a good job, Paul. You have to work on talking rather than reading, but keep that up. You're, you're basically doing all right. Who's got the uh, humanities? That's the big thing. Sends them all to Athens. Um, so going to Athens physically also represents that we're, we're appealing to a reason here. Wisdom's our only way out of this equation. Something the Furies say uh, that struck me also is uh, kind of important is they basically say the gods should stay out of this. This is between mortals. And that kind of speaks to the quality of the, uh, the blood feud is all bets are off once this is started. Religious piety, none of these things matter. Athena gets called in to solve the dispute, and this was maybe my favorite thing that happened in all of it, because I almost missed it. Was she doesn't recognize the Furies at first. She says, Who are you guys? And, uh, yeah, all that I could make of that was basically that the Furies who represent this base and animalistic passion for revenge are not often associated with reason. They don't uh, spend a whole lot of time. Athena knows what's going on, so we're set up with a trial. Uh, 
comes down to a vote of six and six. I think that's significant as well, because this boils down really to a prudential concern. Everybody has sort of a claim to revenge in all of this mess. Uh, and it, it seems that uh, the argument of the Furies that uh, if you don't punish this guy, we're going to be loose. You know, you can't make matricide okay. Uh, but the other side, the side says basically the same thing, which is you can't let the Furies have their way. Um, so it comes down to six and six, and Athena just makes a decision. So, um, transformation of the Furies. This goes back to what they represent, uh, in that they are very heavy on reciprocity. Everybody is repaying everyone else in kind. And when everybody's killing each other, it makes sense that the Furies are the <coughs> representatives of revenge. Um, and, and to my eyes, this was a very natural progression. And they happen to come through the voice of Athena, which says, let's establish law. Let's fix the situation and solve the problem of blood vendetta. And reciprocity at that point, the, the paying in kind, is, is naturally going to become good for so let's do good to everybody. So that to me was a very natural uh, way to end it off, and of course, finally, yay aspects. Okay, so he's justifying a new kind of political mechanism, the court for murder. Um, is it plausible that the Furies become part of this? Um, how do you read the uh, conclusion where they decide not to be the Furies anymore? I think incorporation insofar as the Furies are sort of sort of inextricable with mankind, right? They arise out of you killed my people, so I'm gonna kill your people, right? It's very human. Um, so that desire, because this is a human society, right? That that attitude has got to find its way in somehow. Uh, almost like to jump to your this is not something you can just kick out and have no problems. It's gonna it's gonna come up. Okay. That's a good point. Um, the legal vengeance of finding someone guilty is not entirely divorced from the furies. There is a sort of fury, but a controlled, rational, organized fury, which is quite different. So that's a good way to finish. Good for you. All right. Now let's talk about some of the ironies here. This is important. Um, Athens or at least Aeschylus is trying to get us to believe that Athens has now incorporated this new idea, the rule of law. Rational, public, uh, allows us out of the cycle of revenge. All right, so we're beyond Homer here. But if you remember back to Thucydides, we are only halfway out of that uh, justice 1.0. In other words, the new conception of justice applies only within Athens, all right? This new conception of justice regulated by law does not then, and to a great extent, does not now apply between nations. In other words, international affairs is still the realm of Hobbesian state of nature where big fish eat little fish. So Athens has only gone halfway towards creating a rational political order by establishing the rule of law. It's true for individuals, but now go back to the Melian dialogue in Thucydides. The Melians say, well, look, we believe in old-fashioned ideas of justice and morality and virtue and all the rest of that, 
and we think the gods will be on our side and we have hope and a lot of other stuff. They're an archaic society. They're looking at things in a very old-fashioned way. But the Athenians who say, look, the weak suffer what they must, the, do, the, the strong do what they wish. All right? What they've done is created a split between justice between individuals or families and justice between nations, which is non-existent. There, big fish eat little fish. Remember that in the old idea of the blood vendetta, the side of justice always turned out to be on the side of the biggest, toughest, most fearsome killers. That's essentially the idea that justice is the advantage of the stronger. Because if you aren't man enough to kill the people that killed someone in your uh, family, um, that just means that they are just and they're justified in what they did because you can't wreak vengeance upon them. So when we see the Melian dialogue, we see that this is actually only a half step in the direction of legality and justice. All right? International affairs, like the conflict between Sparta and Athens, that can't be, a, been, that can't be sent to the Areopagus. Strangely enough, later on when we we finally read Kant, we're going to find out that Kant makes the argument that in fact what we need is legal relations between nations modeled on the idea of a social contract between individuals. And he says that's a way of getting real justice for nations that we already secured for individuals. And that idea turns out to be uh, one of Kant's more interesting ones because while he was alive nobody took it very seriously. But what Kant did was write an essay arguing in favor of a League of Nations. What that would have been is a social contract, not between individuals, but between collective subjects. So all the nations get together the way they, they do in the uh, social contract. They all put down their weapons, step back, create a lawful relation. So they have laws and courts. This is the idea of international law. The problem is, of course, how do you enforce international law? The big players can't be coerced, which is the problem. So the point then is this. The Athenians, at the, at the phase of Aeschylus, this is before the Peloponnesian War, they've taken a half step in the direction of rational legality. But it's only a half step. They still haven't established that. As a matter of fact, we still haven't established that at the level of nations. Right? Um, Negotiations between us and uh, Grenada, you know, the little island we invaded in the uh, Reagan presidency, um, they tend to be kind of short. We tell them give up, and then they don't, and then we invade them, and an hour later, they're occupied, and that's that. So the point then is this. The Greeks have given us the germ, the seed of an idea of universal, rational, legal norms. The problem is no one has figured out how to enforce them. It'd be great if Apollo and Athena would show up at the White House saying, look, you can't be doing this. But unfortunately, they don't. We don't get that kind of deus ex machina. So we've never been able to fully complete this project of moving from force to law. Right? And it's a problem that's still open for us. The Athenians, because they didn't make the transition from forced to law in international affairs, they acted in an arrogant and destructive way towards the Melians. 
And the problem is, of course, what comes around goes around. The Melians were related by blood to the Spartans. So what you're seeing here is a collective um, enactment of that old blood vendetta. So blood will out. Now, next week, we're doing Sophocles and we're doing the Oedipus plays. Now, the deal is this. In Sophocles, we're going to see a more sophisticated, more realistic account of human affairs, but it's still going to hinge upon the idea of irrevocable mistakes. If you kill your father and have sex with your mother and start a family with her, we can't fix that. There's just nothing we can do. Your life is totally messed up permanently. Right? It's not like comedy. We have revocable mistakes. Here, the mistakes are always irrevocable. But at the end, again, he picks up a theme from Aeschylus. What he has is Oedipus go to Athens to die. And he, they get some sort of um, advantage from having Aeschylus, the man who suffered so much. Remember that since suffering is the origin of all wisdom, the guy that suffers the most, Oedipus is as bad as it gets, um, is the wisest. He also is going to be buried in Athens, and his wisdom comes along with him. So again, um, Aeschylus's plays are going to be quite patriotic, not quite as blatantly patriotic as this, but the idea is that there's a connection between Athens and wisdom, which distinguishes Athens from all other countries. And yet, Thucydides will say, it distinguishes them in theory, it doesn't distinguish them in practice. That's Thucydides' big point. He said, look, you're going to have to realize that law and rationality have their limitations. Not everything can be solved by becoming wiser. Death, for example, um, may make you wise up, but it doesn't reincarnate the person that died. All right? So next week we're going to do uh, the Oedipus plays. Now these were not a trilogy like this one was. This is the only trilogy that we have left of all the Greek tragedies ever written. Um, how do you, who do you, who, who's going to present that? Who can present uh, Sophocles? You can do, all right, you do uh, Oedipus, Oedipus Rex. What's your Oedipus Colonus? Okay. And what's the last one? Antigone. Antigone. Oh, wow, that's a great one. All right. Here we'll be able to talk about natural law and about sexual perversity. It's a perfect thing. It's the kind of thing you get from the Greeks. Um, Antigone um, is an example of following natural law. On the other hand, she has a very unwholesome uh, sexual attraction to her dead brother, which is not a good sign. She's 13 or 14. She's not a fully grown woman, and she doesn't understand her own motives very well. So she's a real twisted individual. But again, that's par for the course in Greek tragedy. Once again, fun for the whole family. Just the thing to tell the kids you know, at night when you're giving them a bedtime story, tell them about Oedipus. Tell them about Antigone, yeah. That'll put them to bed. All right? This will all be leading in the direction of Plato's criticism of art. He says art is necessarily educative. And what that means is both ethical and political. And if you allow children to be raised on myths like this, look at the House of Atreus and what's going on there. Um, it's going to give children the wrong idea about proper conduct and about the expectations of the gods. 
In other words, art is political and art is educative and tragedy, along with Homer, are two of the things that Plato wants to go after because he thinks it's dangerous for a society that produces this no matter how brilliant it is. And he's probably right. Right. Questions about this? Yeah. Um, there's a lot of debate nowadays about whether the media or what kid what kids see on media affects what how they behave. Yeah, it does. Similar to what Plato's saying about uh, Plato was the guy who thought that up, and he's clearly right. In other words, I'm not sure that his solution is the best because the problem is how we know who's wise enough to censor um, our communications media. Yeah. They're the, they're the personification of the emotions of rage and revenge. So that's why they go back to pre-Homeric times. Right? Uh, it's a sign that the Greeks are reevaluating their political and moral traditions and are trying to find a suitable artistic vehicle by which to explain and account for and elaborate the new ideas that are coming out. That's why tragedy marks uh, a kind of shift from the Homeric tradition to more interesting questions about motivation, about psychology. Right? Um, what the Iliad lacks generally is psychology. Remember that thing, that uh, ambassador scene where uh, Achilles says, Oh, how I hate like the gates of Hades itself, a man who says one thing and does another. And there's no um, articulation by Homer of what Odysseus was thinking, but we can all guess what he must have been thinking. So there's a movement from the external world to the internal world when we move from epic to tragedy. We're going to find out that uh, Oedipus is a heroic and yet twisted individual. And so were his children, who are also his half sisters. Mm. Yeah, it makes Thanksgiving awkward. <laughs> okay. um, so we have three people covering these. Three. Okay, I was. Uh, I will see you all then. All right. Uh, next Tuesday, or rather, next Tuesday, we will do uh, Sophocles. What? Antigone got picked.